And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, December 5th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris after a week off. Although we didn't take the week completely off. We did a podcast with our friend Rob DiPietro. It was the pull hitter podcast that Rob does. So be sure to check out that. We were both on as co-guests last week. So if you really missed Rates and Barrels and you feel like you were down an episode, you can add that episode to your feed. And then, of course, uh, we'll have more episodes coming out later in this week. We'll have a, a 3-0 show coming up in a couple of days because it's the winter meetings. You know, you're in San Diego and it's uh, day one, full first full day in San Diego for the meetings. You're in decent shape now. We know that the winter meetings take a lot out of I'm only going to get in worse shape from here on out. <laughs> Just have to hold you up by the end of the week. But uh, it, a lot's happening already because before the meetings even started, Jacob deGrom went to the Rangers. And we just found out on Monday morning that Justin Verlander is headed to the Mets to be his replacement. Uh, but I think we should start with this DeGrom contract because it's uh, it's a big deal. It's five years, $185 million. Uh, there are some options that can take it to a 60-year and push it up to $225 million. And it goes to this core argument that people have had a lot lately where they feel like a player is just not worth it in free agency, right? There are Rangers fans who are upset. They're, they're afraid of the downside instead of thinking about all the ways it could go right, that even in... Four years out of five, if Jacob deGrom is healthy for four seasons in the next five years, he will be worth much more than $185 million if what he has done throughout his career is any indication of what he is capable of doing in these next years going forward. So I'm just curious, what do you think about this this contract for the Rangers, and what do you think about the Rangers being the team that swooped in and actually got the deal done? Yeah, uh, it seems like... Um the you know stuff plus had something to do with it because uh you know it was uh, the best player by stuff plus and i'm familiar with their thinking to some regard like they they regard they thought about that it, this is the best picture by stuff plus that was on the market the best stuff they could buy and so they bought it you know and when it comes to volume i can see that i can see what they're what people are worried about but you know uh, in 2021 uh, the ground through 92 innings and was worth 4.9 wins, five wins. He could have seasons where he only throws 100 innings and is still a top 10 pitcher, as he was that year. He's such he's so good when he's in that I think it's just a you're just sort of in a way rolling the dice and hoping he's healthy in October. You know, healthy enough to get you to October and healthy in October, and you just you're willing to give him a month off every season if you have to. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's always the question if he misses a whole full season. Uh, but if he does, uh, you know, with modern technology the way it is, I feel like uh, there's a great likelihood that he comes back um, and is fully, you know, has a has a nice little honeymoon, fully win fully healthy window uh, in there where he might actually give you a, a season with 180 innings in there. So the way it is now, 
Uh, Jake DeGrom is projected by Steamer for 100 or depth charts over Fangraphs for 160 innings. And that would, if he does pitch 160 innings, he will be the best pitcher in baseball, in fantasy baseball and regular baseball. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think the perning stuff was still so good last year. 42.7% K rate, 3.3% walk rate. Yeah, that's an elite of the elite reliever. And usually the relievers that miss that many bats don't carry walk rates that low. I mean, it was just absolutely absurd what DeGrom was doing. He had a rare home run issue, had his highest home run rate since 2017 in a park that does tend to suppress home runs. Uh, his home park is like, closer to a neutral park now. The new ballpark in Arlington is definitely not as hitter-friendly as the old ballpark in Arlington, but it's not as pitcher-friendly as City Field. That being said, we're still talking about a guy who skills-wise is so good that it it's not even as difficult as the move for Garrett Cole in free agency a few years ago when he went from Houston to New York, right? Dealing with Yankee Stadium is much more challenging for a pitcher than navigating half of your starts in the new ballpark in Arlington. So from a park factors perspective, I'm not really downgrading him all that much, even though it is a more difficult environment. It's just more of like a game theory sort of problem with DeGrom from a fantasy perspective and how much risk do you want to take on and what circumstances need to be in place for you to roster him. I think the early ADP has him going somewhere in the range of pick 30, pick 35. So if you're in a 15-team league, it's like the end of round two, beginning of round three. And that's a deeper league. A 15-team league is kind of an important consideration, too, because as we have discussed, replacing injured pitchers in deeper leagues is very difficult. So what are the circumstances for you that are most likely for DeGrom to end up on one of your fantasy rosters in 2023? Well, I just uh, you know uh, finished my pitching ranks, early pitching ranks for uh, an athletic project that we're doing, and... Um, uh, I've got, I, I had DeGrom like 10th um, because I sort of was penciling him in for 100 innings. And then I saw the projected innings, saw he'd be first with 160. And I thought even if you sort of split the difference and he gets 130 innings next year, uh, he'd still be top 10. So he kept moving up my top 10. I kind of, in the end, I never felt really good about where I put him. Um, he's one of those things where it's like, it's either one or he could be 20, you know, and it's going to be, it's going to be maybe difficult to own him or you'll just be happy all year, you know, that sort of deal. So, um, I put him fourth. Yeah. You put him fourth. Okay. I've got him sixth right now. I've got Burns, Cole, Woodruff, Scherzer, and Sandy Alcantara ahead of him. And you you couldn't have two more unique profiles at five and six between Sandy yeah. and DeGrom. I mean, the, the high volume of innings. Strikeouts. Yeah. I was looking at the, the two-year combined innings totals, and Sandy Alcantara has thrown 434 and a third innings the last two seasons. And even the guys ahead of him, Burns and Cole and Woodruff and Scherzer, aren't even close. It's 100 more than Scherzer. It's 100 more than Woodruff. It's like 50 more than Cole. And it's about 70 or so more than Burns. I mean, that's just an absurd workload difference. Of course, it's uh, almost you know almost 300 innings more than what DeGrom has thrown during that same span. But I have DeGrom and Spencer Strider as the toss-up on the other side. I have Strider ranked right behind him and then Shane McClanahan clustered in there. I, I think I tend to put guys who have higher risk profiles next Together. to each other because... 
it's at a point in the draft where you say, I'm taking some risk here, and of these risky options, I like them in this order, or I'm going to the other part of the board. I'm going to get a bat. I'm going to get maybe a reliever if we're talking about a slightly later part of this list, but I think that's the way my mind tends to work. And with DeGrom, I, I think the smaller the league, the more likely it is I'm going to have him on my team, right? The 3-0 show league last year was a 10-team league. The replacement level, incredibly high on the waiver wire. So if you get him and he breaks, it's not a problem. 12-team league, still pretty likely to have him there, right? Maybe it's a little different in a high-stakes 12-team league versus a, a medium-stakes or a low-stakes 12-team league where in low and medium-stakes, no problem, I'll have him. Higher stakes, maybe I'm thinking twice about it. But then if you're playing high stakes, you're thinking about leagues that have overall prize components and an overall situation where you're playing against several other leagues, the value that a healthy DeGrom can provide is massive. Right? He can break everything for you. He can push the ratios up to elite of the elite across an entire overall competition. So it's still very tempting. It's a slight discount. I don't know if I feel any better about drafting him because it's a five-year deal as opposed to maybe like a three-year deal. If some team had given him three for 150 or something where the AAV was even higher, that would probably give me more pause that a team wouldn't give him extra years. But I don't know if I'm like running out to go get a lot of Jacob deGrom shares in draft champions leagues just because it's a five-year deal that he got from Texas. Yeah, I similarly had him deGrom shares in Rodon grouped. I feel like um, Scherzer has a little bit of uh, unappreciated health risk himself with the back stuff. Radon obviously has uh, his issues with his shoulder. I generally don't think we're that great at uh, parsing injury risk, and there's a little bit of just chaos involved in it. But I, ha- I have a feeling this number, this ranking for me is going to drop as I means test it, as I actually go into drafts and be like, Really? I'm going to take DeGrom now? Um, I think it'll end up being where I'm like, yeah, I like him, but I'm going to take a hit. You know? And then uh, I'll end up in the third taking, uh, depending on how much helium there is, uh, somebody like Strider or Otani. Uh, no, Otani will go in the first. So, you know, Strider or... Yeah, I didn't know how to rank Otani either because as a pitcher, I was like, you know, back end top 10, I think. I don't... But uh, he's that's not a useful ranking unless you have a split player. So I didn't I don't really know what to do with that one either. But um, I think I'll end up more likely taking someone like if there's a lot of Strider helium, Brandon Woodruff uh, in the third. Um, that might be something that still is appealing to me. And then there's uh, possibly the other guy in the room, Justin Verlander, uh, available in the third. Yeah, Verlander so far in very early drafts goes the latest of the names that we're mentioning of the Strider, DeGrom, Scherzer types. But Scherzer, I think, is valued similar to Verlander just because of the age, right? We're talking about older guys, and you did mention the Scherzer back injury. Verlander, of course, lost 2021 to Tommy John surgery, came back and and pitched very well. I mean, the results were incredible, a 175 ERA, a .83 whip. Steamer right now, which I don't think has updated for the Mets signing because it just happened like two hours ago. Steamer was projecting a 351 ERA and a 109 whip for Verlander in 2023. Now that we know he's going to City Field for half of the starts, especially, 
I would take the under on those ratios anyway, but I would more confidently take the under on that. And I would expect them to come down with that park being factored in. I guess the bigger question with Verlander, he's going to be 40 years old in February. Given his age, given that he's coming off of Tommy John last year, is the slightly reduced strikeout rate that we saw from him in 2022, is that who he is now? Do we accept that? Do we accept the stuff that he had last year as the reasonable skills baseline for him going forward? And then, of course, with the age, can he hold all of the skills that we saw last year? Or do you have to keep gently regressing that, even though he seems to be aging as well as really any pitcher of the last decade? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a, a, a drop off in stuff, and you can see it in the swinging strike rate, which was his worst uh, since 2017. Um, and you can see it in the strikeout rate, which is his worst since 2015. Um, and you can see it, uh, actually, it was worse since uh, 2017 as well, if you ask for these percentages like you should. Um, but, uh, and his stuff plus was, uh, down to 101, basically, uh, the worst stuff plus of anybody I have ranked in the top, uh, in their top 12, like as I have with him. Um, the, the thing that gives me a little bit of pause is that this is a, an established arm that has, uh, established results. And so to some extent, stuff plus matters a little bit less at that point. Um, and so that's why I was happy on, uh, Di Pietro's, uh, pod to announce that, um, Jordan Rosenblum is going to do, uh, uh, projections for us, uh, for, for pitching plus. And so he's going to wrap in, uh, stuff plus and location plus into projections, incorporating the results, you know, the, on the field as well, and trying to find that balance through regression analysis where, you know, how much stuff plus do we use and how much on the field results do we use? And hopefully, um, if he has enough time in the first offseason, maybe a second offseason thing, we'll be able to kind of investigate, you know, the role of fastball stuff plus. And is it more important to have fastball stuff plus and year to year? And does that, you know, does, does a player's uh, aging rely more on that or, you know, secondary stuff and, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I'm really excited to let him dig into the data set and uh, see what he can do when he comes out on the other end. Um, but I, I assume that somebody like Verlander is just somebody where I want to trust the projections a little more than my stuff plus. And that's why, you know, he's projected to be a $25 uh, pitcher by Steamer. In fact, it could be a little bit better with this move to New York. Um, and so I could move him ahead of Aaron Nola and Kevin Gossman uh, and make him the 10th best uh, starting pitcher, um, maybe with like a $26 projection. Um, and uh, I'm not going to worry too much about the stuff plus because it's a great park. He's still going to strike out one per inning at least, and he has great command. And the one thing that he, you know, has been doing as he's been getting older is giving up uh, more homers, except for, you know, this last season. So if there's a risk in the homer rate, that just got really addressed by City Field a little bit. Yeah, it should soften what I would expect to be like normal regression. It should soften that just a little bit, given how difficult it is to hit homers at City Field. If you were in the position of Billy Epler, if you were trying to make this decision for the Mets and... You know, DeGrom ends up going to the Rangers over the weekend. 
It's sort of Verlander at high AV for two years, possibly three, if that third option, third year vest. Do you prefer Verlander to Carlos Rodon with the assumption that Rodon's deal is going to be longer because he's so much younger than everyone else? I mean, the injured, the injury concerns that people have about Jacob deGrom to me are still there with Carlos Rodon as well. I, I'm like really happy for Rodon that two off seasons ago, he was an afterthought. I mean, he was a, a non-guaranteed player to make the opening day rotation for the White Sox. Came back, had that great year, got paid last winter, got the opt-out, and is going to get the big, big deal this winter. I'm happy for him, but I think that's actually a very similar risk profile, albeit from a pitcher that's several years younger than both Verlander and DeGrom. Yeah, um, you know, Carlos Rodon's stuff is way better. Uh, according to Stuff Plus model, and I think, you know, just from watching, I mean, it's a little bit crisper, it's uh, heavier velo, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit better, I think. I mean, he's 114 Stuff Plus, it's, he's up there, Rodonez with Shane McClanahan and Kevin Gossman and, um, you know, Brandon Woodruff and, and just below that uh, elite tier uh, that has like, you know, Cease and Burns and uh, DeGrom in it. So, I... I think I, and here's another reason why I might prefer Rodon, um, which is he's a lefty and the new shift rules are going to place an emphasis on suppressing lefty offense and doing so with strikeouts. Uh, so you want a pitcher who, like, theoretically, if the shift rules do matter a lot, you want a pitcher who does not allow balls in play and uh, who's lefty. So, those two things speak well to Rodon. Now, a five-year deal is probably, you know, the difference there. So, um, the Mets seem to be acting a little bit like the Dodgers, where they'd rather give you high AV and short-term deals. And I can understand that in terms of um, wanting to stay out of uh, just disastrous five-year stints. You know what I mean? Like, like the Nationals are about to enter, where... You've got these two big deals, you know, that you just can't get off your right. Like Strasburg, you know, he's just in Corbin-like type deals where you just you just at the back end of a, just two terrible deals at the same time. You just don't want to. You don't want to have two or three bad deals at the same time that have had multiple years left on them. I think, and uh, so I can understand that. But on the other hand, the way the luxury tax works, um, there are teams that may go over the luxury tax sometimes, may try to stay right under, that would prefer to give longer deals. Because then you stretch out the deal and you have a lower AAV and it's a a smaller luxury tax number. So, um, you know, I don't know exactly which one of those teams the Giants are. We're still kind of waiting for a little bit of a spending identity from the Giants in the Farhan. Uh, unless it's unless this is the spending identity, which is not to spend as much, but uh, uh, you know we keep kept waiting for them to use the financial hammer they have. Um, maybe Rodon is uh, is ideal for a team like the Giants because uh, you know maybe they are a team that wants to spend around two hundred million a year, two hundred ten, two hundred twenty. Then that'll help them have a lower AV. I think that's where they're headed. Uh, I think it's a matter of. Are they going to get Judge? Are they going to get one of the shortstops? Are they going to get a combination of one of the shortstops and Judge? Are they going to throw money at Carlos Rodon? Like I don't, 
I don't think Rodon's going back there. I don't think it's impossible, but I just think there's other teams that are more desperate that will give him the exact terms he wants. And I think the Giants are going to be a little more like the Dodgers team, and Mets. Which teams do you think are like? I think the Angels are one of those desperate teams. Uh, I, think, I think that they're cut more from that Nationals cloth of saying, let's just let's just throw money at the problem. But instead yeah. of getting all the other aspects of a player development and things right that we talk about, let's just let's just patch it. Let's just do it. Let's be that team. And I'm, again, I'm not criticizing teams that do this. It's a different way of building. I think it's good. It's it's a competitive market. It's good for the players because they get different options. They can they can go five, six, seven years. They can go two to three with the higher AAV if they want to. Like that's ultimately good. If every team built the same way, it'd be boring. It'd be a bad market. But whether it's the Angels, maybe the Phillies are kind of like that too. I think the Phillies tend to be a team that's a little more willing to just throw the big pile of money out there. They don't need to get Carlos Rodon, so I don't I don't think that's really the direction they would go. But I think it's going to be one of those other teams that ends up getting him if it does in fact turn into a five or six year deal because I just don't see the big market air quotes smart teams being the ones that go that many years on this risk profile even though it could work just like DeGrom. This could work out just fine because he'll, he'll probably get a deal that prices in the injury risk. And if he stays healthier than expected, he'll actually be a free agent value based on skills. That's entirely possible with Rodon, and it's entirely possible with Jacob DeGrom too. And I think people just lose sight of that. I think we get we get so quick to jump on board and go, oh, it didn't work with the Nats, with Corbin and Strasburg and Jordan Zimmerman. Those guys all got hurt. But it, it worked with Scherzer. Right. No, Sometimes I mean, it, it also did work. They won. They won. Right. And and that's the other part of it, too. It's like if you win a World Series and you signed a guy to a long term deal that worked didn't work out in the end, I guess with the Jose Abreu contract with the Astros talked about them in the 3-0 show. If Jose Abreu is a bad player in 2025, do you care if you won a World Series in 2023 or 2024 and he was a part of it? Like, no, you shouldn't. Right. You won. That's the whole point. Doesn't have to be perfect economic efficiency at every single turn when the goal is to win a World Series. So I think we have to accept that uh, as part of what happens sometimes too. And if you, you make these commitments and you don't win, then sure, you're going to be judged a little bit differently uh, than if you did. We have a, a little fun piece that's up on The Athletic right now where Andrew Baggerly and Melissa Lockhart and Tim Kawakami and Grant Brisby and I all spent $62 million of the Giants' money. The way I looked at it, I... Um, I used um, I use I use a little bit of dollars per win analysis, and w- when I first did it, it looked like oh Nimmo, you know, because Nimmo always pops in terms of. I wonder if Nimmo is going to continually pop on every team's radar as the best value out there until they push the money to, on the contract to where he's not the best value out there. <laughs> but. Uh, one answer was like Nimmo, Drury, you know, and some other stuff. And I was like, man, this team already has like five Brandon Drury's. It definitely does not need another Brandon Drury. And uh, so what I did was I took what they currently had at the depth chart at that position of every player and subtracted it from the value, from the productive, productive value of the, of the play of the free agent players. And, uh, once I did that, there was one name that popped. It was big guy himself. So it was like spend all the money on Aaron Judge and then spend whatever's left on, you know, the bullpen and the rotation, which actually 
seems to kind of fit what the Giants have been doing. You know, they find those one-year pop-up arms. They, they, you know, they go and find reclamation projects. They, you know, I could totally see them, you know, finding a $10 million starting pitcher and a, you know, $2 million reliever. And that's their closer and their, you know, number three starter next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could definitely see it playing out like that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, we had a related question that came in in our mailbags. We're talking about rankings a little bit here at the beginning of this show. Mark wanted to know, how do we put together our rankings from a literal perspective? Like You talked about just getting them ready for a project. So where does it begin? Do you have a, a rolling rankings list that just never stops that you just keep updating and updating and updating like month over month, publishing new updates? Do you wipe the slate clean? Uh, do you got a massive spreadsheet with, full of stuff? Like what, What's your process take us inside the mind of Eno and, and how you like to put those together yeah uh during the season i do have uh basically uh an updating spreadsheet that i just sort of te- tweak all all season um but i do wipe the slate clean every off season to start over and i think it's important to do so to kind of refresh to catch some of the players that missed the entire season to consider players coming over from japan and you know there's there's just it's a i did write a piece once that uh seasons are arbitrary endpoints <laughs> <laughs> that was in my deep in my naval uh fan graphs times <laughs> but uh I, I i do think that it's a natural endpoint for us that we all sort of you know refresh to start over and um and then uh, it's pretty simple for me. The the uh, the way I start is with the projection system. Now, right now, uh, Steamer is the one that's out, um, and I think it's pretty good. I even had a, a team analyst tell me that Steamer was their benchmark, basically. That if they were going to do something and it was worth doing, it had to beat Steamer. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, Steamer is an industry benchmark. It's a, it's a it's available and it updates quickly, and it's there for us, and it's good. Uh, so I start with steamer, you know, with these pitching ranks, and then I upload to that spreadsheet other things that I think are important. And so this year I was looking at, um, stuff plus location plus pitching plus, and I also separately broke out fastball stuff plus, and it would be tempting for me to put K minus BB and some other really strong statistics on there. However, I know those are considered by the projection system. I don't necessarily want to double, triple count certain things. So I wanted to put something that I don't necessarily think is in Steamer, which is the, the Pitching Plus model. Um, and the reason I broke out Fastball Stuff Plus is I just have an inkling that uh, that 
is possibly more important on a year-to-year basis um, than it is in a given season. And I, we know that Pitching Plus is strong for relievers year-to-year, uh, but for starters, it is stronger in-season than it is year-to-year. And that's why I start with projections and then just allow um, the Pitching Plus model to gently move guys around. So, for example, Shea Bieber... Uh, is projected to be a $23 pitcher. Uh, again, he does not have a good pitching plus, uh, but I'm not going to push him out of the top 20 because he still has that $23 projection. Um, but he has a 78 fastball stuff plus. It's uh, still the worst in the top 20 for me. And so I may not be the high man, but I'm not going to push him really far down. I have Dylan Cease and Sandy Alcantara, who have worse projections ahead of him. Um, but otherwise, uh, he's pretty much where he should be due to his projections. I just could not put him ahead of Dylan Cease. So I think you, you probably have a very similar process to what I do. Like I, I do actually leave some of the stats that are in the projection on my sheet. And I've talked about conditional formatting. It's just highlighting automatically by color uh, our conversation with Rob on the Pull Hitter podcast. Like I said then, I, I don't really worry about precision as much as I just want to flag good and bad just so I can at a glance see, oh, this is a little bit low. Uh, this is a, a low strikeout rate for a guy that I've got in the top 20 starting pitchers compared to others. And I dig in a little more and try and decide, like, is that going to stay low? Am I too high on this guy for some reason? Are there other factors that I should be considering? It's just a good way to kind of error check yourself. That's what I use it for anyway. People might have other applications for it. But I think you could start. like If you if you were saying, how would I start my own set of rankings? It is not unreasonable at all to go to something like the Fangraphs auction calculator, run it right now with the steamer projections, export the hitters and the pitchers, drop those into a spreadsheet, and start working off of that and adding the other factors that you want. I mean, I think having some... Pretty basic Google Sheets, Excel chops will help you because you can present more information clearly to yourself and and kind of salt the taste from there. But I think this is how most people play. I think the thing I would like to know about you is, do you consider what the market does? Do you consider ADP in your rankings not to guide your decision making as much as to give you a clear indicator of where you might be higher or lower on a player than the field because you can run the risk of getting caught in groupthink and like if you're if you're if you're ranking to ADP that's bad you're just doing what the market's doing but if you're aware of what the market's doing i think you can leverage a position a lot more effectively on a player that you really like that is underpriced by most draft rooms i didn't in this run because i felt it was a little early and that i might be working off a small sample ADPs and i wasn't just sure how robust uh, that crowdsourcing information was, but I do in my uh, March, you know, my my rankings that happen, you know, in the early year on the site. Um, and one of the reasons I do is is it's it's just not useful to put like. I'll, I'll I'll give you guys uh, a quote unquote sleeper from uh, from my list this year. Um, I've got a group 
in the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, anybody who's my rankings knows that's that's where I kind of grouped sleepers because you're you're taking a, you know somewhere that doesn't cost that much could have tremendous upside. Uh, let me just say that I use Michael Kopech. Michael Kopech has a uh, has a negative projection. I use twenty teams, so like Steamer thinks he won't even be uh, worth uh, pitching a twenty team league. Hmm. Um, and yet he has a one hundred eight stuff plus uh, and a poor location plus. But couldn't he, you know, get that knee right? You know, location plus isn't a sticky year to year. Isn't there a lot of narrative where he could just come back and have, what if he had the same location plus as Jesus Lazardo last year, 97, you know, I don't know. I think he could easily do that. And then he would be a much better pitcher. And, uh, you know, he has a similar profile to Hunter Brown, who I've ahead of him. Um, you know, he has a similar profile to Aaron Ashby, who I have like 20 points ahead of him. But anyway, long story short, I think Michael Kopech is interesting. Um, but, you know, as I get better ADPs, uh, I bet I get a sense of, is it useful for me to rank 81st? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I have Luis Ortiz from the Pirates there. What if uh, he's not sure that, the, you know, he gets a rotation spot? We're not sure that he gets a rotation spot out of spring, right? Pitching Plus loved him, you know, or at least Stuff Plus did. Um, sh- it, once ADP starts becoming robust enough, then I can know, oh, okay, I should I should put him in the 90s or so because he's being taken as the 120th pitcher. It's not useful for me to put him at eight. Right. If you put him if you if you rank him too early relative to the market, as blanket advice, the rankings are not helping others, they're not helping you if you're just overpaying against yourself. Yeah. Part of the art of ranking players correctly is getting the guys you should be getting at the right time. Yeah. Not easy not easy to do. But it, it's an important consideration. And I think it mostly matters in that sort of 60, 70 plus because that's where you can have wild swings in ADPs um, just because the numbers are higher. It's actually like math. Thing, you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, so, you know, if I have uh, Shane Bieber at 18 and he's flying off the board uh, at 12, it's a similar thing. Uh, but I don't feel as much need to put Shane Bieber where ADP. Now, this might be the result of spending a lot of time with you and potting with you, but I think I have Bieber ranked in a way right now relative to early ADP where I will not have any Shane Bieber. Yeah, so what's the ADP on him? 49 for November. Pick 49. Among pitchers, though. Mm, That's probably, I'm going to say about 15th or so among pitchers. I mean, I have him 18th and... The law of math is that, like, you know, that's a, you know, 15 to 18 is a bigger drop than you know, mm-hmm. 60 to 63, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I doubt I'll have much. And in fact, uh, as I means test this, uh, right now I have Blake Snell, Zach Gallen, Luis Severino, Julio Urias, and Alec Manoa right behind him. And, and like, me personally, like, how many of those names are you going to take over Shane Bieber? I mean, it could change. Yeah. I'm not sure it's all of them. Luis Severino kind of comes to mind. I love Julio Rios. 
the projection on your race is not amazing. The projection on Manoa is not amazing. There was a piece on Fangraphs about how the low steamer projection on Manoa is a feature, not a bug. I definitely get Rias ahead of him, and I don't think I'd move off that. I'll, I'll, I'll fight the projections on Urias forever. I mean, not forever, but at least for the next year or two. I, I don't. I want to understand how it comes up with that. It was a 404 ERA and a 123 whip. I need answers. I need understanding. I can't. I can't just accept that and and move him down in the ranks as a as a result of that. Uh, I know the K rate's low. Uh, that's part of the problem. I think he has shed some of the innings concerns that we had for him earlier in his career. Some of that was directly because of injury. Some of that was kind of an effort to manage him in a way where he wouldn't get hurt again. I think we're kind of at the point now where, yeah, he's not the workhorse workhorse like a a Garrett Cole where you're just not really worried about it at all, but he's probably just one notch below that sort of expectation from an innings perspective. So I think that's gone. Maybe there's a case that the, the skills are lagging behind other top 10 pitchers though maybe that's what it is maybe it's just the k rate in particular it's driving up uh, the ratios quite a bit here's another question for you uh, related to a signing we saw zach efflin gets a three-year deal with the rays okay so zach efflin getting three years somewhere if you told me that i would have said sure that makes sense i tweeted this when it happened you could have given me 20 guesses to the team that would have signed Zach Eflin do a three-year deal. I wouldn't have come up with the Rays. I just would not have. I just would have thought, okay, good pitcher with some interesting stuff. A guy we've liked as kind of a middle round, later round sleeper at times in the past. Gets out of a hitter-friendly ballpark. Sure, we could see this work. This this could actually be a good thing. But Eflin seems more like the kind of guy the Rays either trade for under club control or just develop themselves as opposed to someone they go out an ink to you know a three-year deal that's actually for them pretty substantial 13 million a year so 40 million biggest in total they've ever, they've ever handed out yeah yeah biggest free agent contract the rays have ever signed a player to so obviously they see something and we know that they they change things about pitchers all the time so when you look at efflin what changes do you think the rays are going to make to get this contract to look really good in hindsight potentially well I mean, first of all, I think there is something that Eflin does at an elite level. Um, you know, if you sort my top 125 pitchers, starting pitchers by location plus, you get Aaron Nola first, Ross Stripling second, Brandon Woodruff third, Zach Eflin fourth, Jacob DeGrom fifth, Justin Verlander sixth, George Kirby seventh, Gossman eighth. So, and I say that location plus is not sticky year to year, but however, when it comes to elite location, it is a little bit stickier year to year. It's the elite non-location that adds noise. There's just some pitchers that are hurt some year, have poor location, and get it back the next year. So, uh, you know, once you have demonstrated elite location, it's a little bit stickier year to year. Nolan, for example, has been top three in whatever location plus number I've had ever since I had command plus back in the day. You know, so Nola is very obviously one of the command artists of our time, and it's stuck with him year to year. So there's sort of betting on like a mini Nola, you know, sort of package where like this guy has a bunch of pitches and he can command them. Now, when I look at the for pitch types, uh, uh, there's a possible overuse of the cutter, um, which is kind of an averageish pitch. Um, however, um, it's his best fastball. He's he's a bad fastball guy, kind of. So I don't know. 
if they will increase the use of the cutter. Uh, there's a chance that they could improve his uh, curve and change because uh, you know, slider is his, is his best pitch, pretty obviously. Uh, but I think the actual bet here is not so much that they can change him, but that uh, he's, he'll be good just because he can command these pitches. I think the idea is uh, that he'll be the meat away of their rotation uh, and give them someone who can, uh, you know, allow them to play the games that they do with the rest of their roster. Somebody has to put up innings. Although that is important, yeah. He's been hurt too, right? Multiple knee injuries, yeah. He's had knee trouble. But, yeah, I look at, uh, you know, the changeup is a, a poor pitch. Maybe they, they have something there for his, his changeup. Uh, and then uh, otherwise, though, it's, it's a collection of five good pitches uh, that he commands really well. So I think it's maybe they'll just have something. Maybe it's a little bit more about um, you know, maybe using the slider more because he didn't use it that much or um, just becoming a guy who throws everything 25% of the time. Just really upping that, like you have no idea what's coming. I'm trying to come up with a like a roto comp for what I expect Eflin to do. Getting, I mean, getting out of Citizens Bank ballpark. I think that's ultimately a good thing. I think a more balanced schedule, spending less time facing AL East teams will be good. But he also landed in a pitcher friendly environment in that division anyway. I think this is probably a similar profile in terms of ratios and low K rate and high win probability. Similar to Jose Urquidy. I think if you're into Jose Urquidy, you can be into Eflin. I think the difference is, so far, your pitching model has always pointed us back to Urquidy as having better stuff. But I think in terms of like that high threes ERA, good whip, low K rate combo, that's kind of what I think you're signing up for with Eflin, at least at the present time. I think a little bit of Jeffrey Springs, but not like Jeffrey Springs the results, but Jeffrey Springs the process. I think he could maybe bump it up to you know around a strikeout per inning if there is uh, some undiscovered potential in, in Eflin. He has had seasons where he's had more strikeouts, so uh, I, I mean I, I think he's more interesting than, uh, fantasy wise. Yeah, for sure. I, a guy that I would not have thought a lot about this off season if he landed. For a team, I don't know, again, Angels, I'm sorry to pick on you again. If you just went to the Angels and be like, oh, sure, they need innings, makes sense, move on. But the Rays went and got them, so I'm a little more intrigued now because clearly there's a reason they did it. But you're right about the innings. They have so many young starters with elevated injury risk. They play a lot of uh, depth games with that roster. They need to find ways to get someone in the rotation, a couple of someones in there every fifth day just to chew up those innings. It's theoretically the type that could go deep into games. So even if it's not multiple like a ton of innings on the year uh it is uh the kind of player that might help them save their bullpen right because they can't have every guy go full. <laughs> yeah it uh, doesn't quite work math uh, falls a little short innings wise and actually to that's an interesting thing to bring up because we did find this year this past year that command starts to fall apart a little bit at pitch number 80 and then we saw that the the rays were were like only leaving their pitchers in for 80 pitches it's like, oh, okay. They saw this kind of research themselves. And so maybe the idea is hey, we've, now we've got a guy with elite command. So if after pitch 80, he kind of drops off of that a little bit, he's still going to be better than most. So maybe here's a guy that we can actually leave out there for 100. 
Yeah. It depends on the circumstances too, right? If they're protecting a big lead, then they'll probably let them go. If it's a closer game, maybe in that case, they've got a rested bullpen. They go to the bullpen depending on the matchups too. So I'm really curious to see how that one actually plays out. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man and the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Another mailbag question. What's the easiest way to access the Pitching Plus leaderboard right now? This is a question from Matt. It kind of fits into the, I want stuff on my, on my ranking sheet. <laughs> Where do I go right now to get the full leaderboard? Yeah, I think the easiest thing is just to find my uh, find one of my rankings because uh, I, I always in my rankings said something about a Google Doc and attached the Google Doc. So just find one of my rankings on the site and then look through the text for the Google Doc. It's an awful, awful. I'm sorry about it. Still, that's the easiest way. I will try to remember to put then, the link the in the Google show Doc. notes. Yeah, yeah. Bookmark the Google Doc once you find it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the key, bookmark it. Uh, but I'll put a, a link to a rankings piece in the show notes. So if you click on the description, you should be able to follow through there. If you're a subscriber, you'll be able to get, it and get the thing that you're looking for. Hopefully, hopefully that will make it easier and then we'll have a, a better way in the future. Uh, mailbag question here. This is a Razor-related question from Corey. Corey wants to know, is Isak Paredes staring us in the face as a potential breakout and we're just missing it? It seems like if he could simply get his BABIP up to 230, he could have a huge year with great multi-position eligibility. Uh, the email also includes players 23 or younger that hit 20 home runs last year include Vlad, 
Julio Rodriguez, Juan Soto, Bobby Witt Jr., and of course, Paredes is the main concern that he gets raised into only 400 plate appearances. I mean, he does do a lot of the things that I like uh, in a player that he uh, makes contact and does not swing at balls. Uh, his barrel rate was pretty good. His max EV was pretty good. And everything was good except for the batting average of balls in play. And he's not like a guy who hits 50% fly balls. So uh, you know, there's also uh, a very high pull rate. Uh, and as a righty, it may not may, it may not leap to the, the front of your brain that, you know, the shift rules may affect him, but the shift rules may affect him. And, uh, you know, he's projected already for, you know, 244, uh, batting average to be 30% better than league average uh, in 483 plate appearances. And I just don't think those things can both be true. If he is 30% better than league average, the Rays will play him. So, you know, now you're talking uh, 244 average, like an actual projection of a 244, you know, 25 homers, 27 homers, because that's in 483 plate appearances, if you kind of prorate that out. And then you you know that um, there's a lot of guesswork in terms of projecting uh, based on the shift. And so what if he hit 260 with 27 homers next year? Not impossible. Definitely a player I would like to have a couple shares of. Yeah, he's got a really strange line for, for the approach that he has. Like last year's results, 205, 304, 435 line does not make sense for a guy that walked 11.5% of the time and struck out 17.6% of the time. Those are played skills that he's shown throughout his time in the upper levels of the minors. So it's not at all surprising that he's I mean, the done power that at the big league level. And, gone, and this was the best power he's ever shown. However, they really set him up to uh, hammer balls up and in uh, in the sort of Carlos Correa, uh, Alex Bregman uh, type of approach. And it seemed to fit him very well. I was told by some uh, Tigers fans that some of that adjustment had been made before, uh, but kudos to the Rays for spotting uh, some early changes in his approach, maybe, and going and getting him, uh, because it, it really sort of flourished in Tampa um, as an approach. And uh, You know, there's always the chance that people stop throwing him pitches uh, up and in, but uh, he does have enough uh, hit tool where He's going to do something with the other pitches. And if he could do enough of something with other pitches, uh, maybe those balls start floating back up and in again. He hammers those. So you kind of want a hitter to demonstrate uh, two or three or four different ways to to be successful. And I think that Paredes is giving us at least three, which is not chase, uh, hit tool, you know, put the ball in play. And hammer the ball up and in. It's three different ways to 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 damage a, a pitcher, right? I think if you get two one note with one thing, that's when you're sort of like, you know, like what can Daniel Vogelbach do? He can not swing at balls. Sometimes hammer the pitch down low. He has a surprising amount of hit tool, but I would say he's a kind of a two note. So anyway, if you were back to that conversation about making rankings, I think if you were going to put some uh, numbers on your spreadsheet for hitters. I think they're, you're like if you're listening to this, it's obvious uh, that we would say something like 
contact rate, chase rate, barrel rate. Yeah. Maybe Phil Maxi be in for a sense of max power. I think the other thing that I would encourage people to try and and put a real value on is the multi-position eligibility. I think Paredes has first, second, and third. And you're talking about a guy that in early drafts has been going almost in the back of the top 400. That's a great price for someone that you can probably play, let's just say, for half of the lineup periods for the upcoming season with twice-a-week changes. Totally fine to have corner, middle, three infield spots like that. And it could turn into more. Yep. And... I know he's not going to really do much in terms of like stealing bases, but I think he could be good in average, very good in power, runs and RBI should be there too, could find his way into a larger role than expected. So I think that's a good call, Corey. I'm glad uh, Paredes came the, up. One of the things that uh, I have been talking to people about here um, and is uh, relevant to fantasy managers and uh, teams alike is just the idea of how aggressive uh, to be based on a new scoring environment, a new game that we don't know how it's going to play out. Um, I talked to a first base coach last night who thought it's not going to be a big deal. You know, he thought, <laughs> he thought the throws over uh, weren't going to be a big deal. We're talking about, uh, I've, I've said this before, but uh, there are about 12 players in baseball that average more than one throw over uh, at first base. 12 regular players. So, uh, yes, it's that second throw over that gets you in trouble because then the third one, you have to get them where it's a block, right? Uh, but if there's only 12 players, those are the elite base dealers anyway. You know, <laughs> so uh, maybe it won't be that big a deal. And then uh, he was thinking that the, 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 the two inches to home plate, the four and a half inches to second base um, in shortening of the base pass would also not be a big deal. So, this is a guy who's telling people when to go or not. <laughs> yes, this is someone who has uh, a vested interest in yeah. players being successful stealing bases. So interesting, very interesting conclusion there or hypothesis. I think you've also seen some teams be aggressive, uh, doing things a little bit differently. One team uh, that I think made two moves that uh, kind of stick out to me as a team being maybe a little aggressive on this front is uh, the Pirates uh, signing. Carlos Santana and G-Man Choi. You know, they, they, it seems to be a, a shift bet, you know, and, uh, have a salary here on the G-Man Choi page, but the Santana salary was what? Under 7 million. Yeah, it was yeah. low. So they're like, Hey, we just got these two players for a combined $10 million and they, you know, hit the ball hard. They're lefties that hit the ball hard. It's a, it's a small bet, right? You know, but it seems like the right kind of small bet for a for a small team, small market team to do. So I don't know if that means that they're going to be the go go pirates with the two you know slow sluggers that get everything into where the shift used to be. But uh, you know, at least on one little way, there they've uh, done something a little different. One last topic before we go: there was another Ooh, trade that be, went down. This might be part of it too. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of fits in. Colton Wong ends up going to the Mariners for Jesse Winker and Abraham Toro. And I know Winker because, at least in part because of injuries. From the Brewers. Yeah, right? Cash going to Seattle. So 
a strange trade because it, it seems like a buy low on Winker. It seems like the Brewers are ready to see what Bryce Terang does at second base. So moving Wong, you know, of, of the players that higher cost players for 2023 they had, second base was a spot where they could afford to move someone and just go with the cheaper internal replacement. Uh, they get a good bench player in Toro. I like Winker as a buy low. I, I think as long as he's healthy coming off of two surgeries, which is a pretty, it's a pretty big conditional if uh, he's an impact bat. And I think he could bounce back in a pretty big way for the Brewers. But Colton Wong is just a nice all-round player too. Had a bit of a down year defensively, but I, the longer track record there is really encouraging. There's power, there's speed, he gets on base consistently. Uh, this could be a good trade really for both sides. Yeah, you know, Wong is a, is such an interesting player because last year was 252nd and outs above average among 268 qualified players, and uh, that's just not what I think of of his game. You know? No, no, he was sec- he was 62nd percentile and outs above average in 2021 before that fall off. That just that's just weird. Yeah, and to you know to do that in one year. Um, it's also uh, interesting because uh, we think that the shift rules is going to put more of an emphasis on second base defense uh, because you can no longer uh, shift them and they have to be able to have a little bit of range. Uh, is Colton Wong the guy who was in the 62nd percentile, the guy who used to have plus outs above average in St. Louis, or is he you know, one of the worst defenders at second base in baseball last year? You know, It seems to be a bit of a bet. However, you also know that teams have their own internal defensive metrics, so maybe they just theirs looks different. Um, but any in any case, there's a little bit of bet there because uh, you know they did give up some players. I I know that everyone's down on Jesse Winker. I'm not as down. <clears throat> I, w- I would do want to see what the next surgery brings because he's had a neck surgery and then there's a possible back surgery coming. Two surgeries. Is a little rough. It may lead to recovery times that uh, bleed into the season. Um, in which case, uh, it'll be interesting that the Brewers had to pay Wong's salary down and also pay all of Winker's salary. Um, so health is a big question mark there. Almost a $2 million difference. I mean, the amount of cash that was sent may have been relatively small. It may have just been a cash-neutral deal, mm. which... In that case, you kind of say, okay, they're, again, shuffling stuff around on the roster without spending more money. Because Wong then it makes some sense. less expensive than, no, more expensive than. More expensive, yeah. Wong, yeah, I think, was 10, 10 mil. mil. Yeah, so, okay, maybe it was just the two million difference. What was the other player? Oh, Toro. Abraham Toro, yeah. Which I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of consternation. And, you know, uh, you know we've, we've talked about Abraham Toro and liked him in the past. But I think the lesson to be learned from Toro in a way, if there is one, is that, uh, you know, batted ball power matters. You know, he does everything right in terms of not striking out too much, not chasing too much, uh, although he chases a little bit, uh, walking a fair amount. Seems like a good player. The defense is bad and the, and the batted ball quality is bad. And, uh, so I wonder, I wonder what uh, the Brewers are going to do. You know, Toro is going to be the two-rang backup plan, or they're going to put both those guys out there. Is either one of them going to have league average power? I was worried about Bryce Terang's power 
because we didn't see it in games prior to last season and because he's also not a very large human. Like he's he's a pretty wiry guy. There was a lot of speed in the profile right away. But he kept the speed and hit 13 home runs last year at AAA. Nashville was the affiliate, so it wasn't, you know, high altitude extreme hitter friendly uh, you know, kickball conditions in Albuquerque or El Paso or something along those lines. So I'm a little more optimistic about his power now than I was, especially because he's also been very young for the level everywhere he's played. Bryce Tarank just turned 23 a few weeks ago in November. But I still think it's hit tool and speed over power. I think if you got more than a half dozen homers from Bryce Tarang over 450 plate appearances, the big league level in 2023, You'd be pleasantly surprised, and I wonder Sounds if it's going to gonna like be. You're, you're kind of describing Colton Wong. Colton Wong with with less established power, right? And if he's a better defender up the <clears> middle <throat> right now, yeah, you know that's a younger that probably Colton works. Wong. Yeah, because Colton Wong, you know, didn't didn't come up with great power himself. Yeah, so that'd be my concern with Terang. I'm looking at the hard hit numbers that the Rotowire player page has: twenty four point eight percent hard hit rate in the minor that's leagues. So good. still pretty low. Yeah, it, it's. It's still not a certainty. The, the question someone asked me, and I didn't really have a good answer for this, was what if they just put Luis Urias back at second base? He's kind of a plus defender over there, not necessarily a good defender at third, and they go out and find a third baseman. Like, what if part of their roster shuffling brings in someone there, and then Terang's more of a utility guy as opposed to the everyday second baseman? And I thought that was at least possible, but I feel like that's more dependent upon a trade happening that's unforeseen as opposed to an obvious let's go get this guy in free agency and make him our third baseman and move Luis Arias over. Well, I don't know how many times we've wish casted a free agent into Milwaukee and nothing happened. Oh, yeah. So oh, that's, that's my let's not go down this road again. My but bread and butter. I would point out that uh, roster resource has them about 20 million down from last year. And I would say as a team, other than uh, just a bat somewhere. Uh, is there an obvious need? Uh, I mean, obviously, center would be great, but I think uh, this is the type of team that goes young up the middle, young and cheap up the middle, and would rather buy the new Hunter Renfro, right? So I think you kind of do uh, Garrett Mitchell and Tyrod Taylor, kind of, you know, that's your up the middle plan for this three Ruiz. With those three, you know, you're going to find a center fielder there. Um, and then, you know, Yelich and Winker, you know, in corner and DH. Uh, I think the natural spot that I'm looking at is corner outfield as a place that they could uh, spend. But corner infield is is the other one. Uh, you could move Urias and then have uh, basically release Brosseau or have Brosseau be the last bat on the uh, on the depth chart and have, or not even bring Turing up. So then it's Brosseau and Toro as your utility guys. Um, that's a possibility. So what, what are we looking at uh, on the free agent market that would be an actual uh, fit for them? Let me select uh, corner infield and third base. Uh, Aaron Judge. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> Brandon Drury? Ugh, yeah, I know. I, I, I only make that sound just because I. that's just exactly the kind of move that I feel that like they, they will make. make. And I want, <laughs> I want a higher ceiling player. I know he had a great year, but I just, I just sort. If I sort by projected WAR, uh, Mitch Hanniger 
Oh, see, that I actually kind of like. But he's not being rumored there at all. It's the rumors are the Sox and the Rangers. I don't think they're going after any outfielders because I think with Winker, that he's more of a DH than an outfielder. You can play him in the outfield, but he's really your he's regular bad for a while. DH. And between Mitchell and Sal Freelich and Asturio Ruiz, you have all those young outfielders that you want to play somewhere. So I don't know if they're going to add another outfielder on top of what they have, unless they trade young outfielders to address a need, maybe behind the plate. And you catch her. Get into the Sean Murphy sweepstakes. Come yeah, on. that would be good. Do that. Uh, Cody Bellinger is an interesting name that pops, but uh, I, I just don't have the feeling. I think you're right. I think they, it's not the What's about Justin Turner? Oh, that's a kind of fun idea. That would actually work because it'd be a shorter term deal. Yeah. Turner plays third, Arias plays second, makes them a lot better offensively. It's it scratches the itch of not throwing too much money at like a Brandon Drury, too many years at someone like Brandon Drury. Maybe you convince them, hey, you know, get out of the LA thing. Maybe you know, have, add a little bit of your own legacy at a different team, and you know, maybe we'll give you a second year where the Dodgers won't. Yeah, I do think Justin Turner, even though there's some. Durability concerns at this stage of his career. But they have the, like the mix and match pieces behind him, right? Yep, that's the point of having the depth. I think that would make them better. I think that's on the the short list of moves they should consider to actually upgrade. So it's an incomplete puzzle, but I do think if you're in an early draft and you're looking for speed and you're looking for speed late, Bryce Terang might be worth the flyer because it might be a partial season where he's getting some run. He's a lefty, so if it's a platoon. You could end up on the larger side of the playing time split at second base in Milwaukee, but they never do anything conventional anymore. They're they're always the like a wild card team for the offseason. Yes, uh, enjoy Evan Longoria uh, and uh, Will Myers. <laughs> on that note, uh, I'm going to end our conversation. If you are enjoying this podcast, uh, I don't know if I am anymore. <laughs> Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. Drop us an email. We'll, we'll take those emails. Be sure to hit the like button if you're watching us on YouTube. Tell a friend if you uh, got any friends that are interested in baseball podcasts and haven't heard of us yet. No downside to uh, to sharing us with uh, other folks that enjoy baseball. I don't normally shame the Brewers. <laughs> yeah, they kind of deserve it right now. On Twitter, Eno is at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you next week. Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. We've got something coming over the hot, hot off the wire, hot off the wire. Trey Turner signs with the Phillies, signs with the Phillies, 11 years, $300 million. That's a team with two $300 million players. Has that got to be a first? Has to be. Yeah. My mind is a little empty right now. Oh, wait. Machado and Tatis. Oh, does it count if it's an extension, though? But anyway, <laughs> uh, it does count yeah, it does. some it, level. It, no, it definitely counts. It is real money. <laughs> it is being paid. <laughs> yeah, but uh, pretty cool. They got their shortstop. They needed a shortstop. Uh, I do wonder how long uh, he's going to be a shortstop. One thing that I did like about uh, Turner versus the other guys uh, was that uh, he's the only one of the short stops that I can think plays center field. Yeah. So I do think there's some defensive versatility there. I did the aging curve uh, that um, you normally do, which is uh, subtract a half a win 
uh, per season uh, after age 30. And uh, when I did that, in his 11th year, he would be below replacement. However, I kind of doubt that is going to be true. I would, uh, first of all, just think if he is going to be uh, below replacement, they might just cut him. And so, you know, that won't be, that'll be a zero rather than a minus 0.3. Um, and uh, also just his skill set seems really well suited for a guy who can just, uh, you know, play you at the end of his career, play you some second, play you some left, uh, you know, get on base, steal some bases. And we now, we were just talking about the new base stealing environment. You know, he's got to, you know, even if I don't think he's going to double his stolen bases next year, he's got to benefit from the, you know, the four inches and the throws over. And he is the number one regular in terms of throws over to first. So uh, I think it's a little bit of a bet on the new rules. And it's just also we need a shortstop right now. And here's an elite shortstop. We got really close uh, to winning it all this year. And we just we're going to get better. Yeah, Trey Turner will be a shortstop until the Phillies develop a new shortstop. And then at that time, they could decide where he fits best. And I think with his athleticism, center field will still be a possibility. Second base could be fine. One of the corners could be fine. I mean, there's that's not anything to worry about right Stott now. Stott did rate better and by outs above average last year. Well, we'll see. He could be their second baseman, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But 99th percentile in sprint speed still. 86 percentile in max exit velocity. I think that was the part of Trey Turner's game that really came in over the last three to four years, especially the consistent power output has been at a level that few people might have expected back when he first broke into the league. It seemed like it was a lot of speed and hit tool initially, and the power is consistent. The approach is good. The only thing that's a little bit strange to me, looking at what happened in 2022, a 36.4% O-swing percentage. It's a pretty big jump for a guy that's usually right around that 30% mark. So Maybe some concerns the K rate will start to rise here in the early parts of this deal if he continues chasing pitches outside the zone at that rate. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what, what would happen there. If there was maybe a bit of a book that started to develop on him um, because the strikeout rate did go up uh, after you know two of his best years of his career, but it's still in line with his regular, uh, you know, work 18% for his, for his career, 18.5% last year. Swing strike rate was the highest and that is related to chasing. But with a guy with such an excellent hit tool like this and a background of not chasing, I think I would uh, consider that maybe the one year aberration uh, when it comes to his line. So, uh, just an amazing bet. The thing is that's different about Bryce Harper is that when Bryce Harper got $300 million from them, he was, what, 27? Uh, Trey Turner is 29 and a half, basically. So this is a... And, and Manny Machado's $300 million deal came when he was 27. And Trout's big deal uh, came as well when he was younger. So this is one of the older big deals like this and i think they're just betting on young legs i mean 90 what is he what do you say 99th percentile still yeah, it's not not showing any signs it's of losing speed yet, yet. <laughs> and how that ages of course uh you know we we will see i i don't i think back to the big contracts given to players at age 29 age 30 right around that time and so many of them are, are corner mashers this is a different mm. sort of profile in part because 
most guys who run like this don't hit the ball as well as Trey Turner does. That's a pretty unusual mm-hmm. combo. You're, you're probably going back to, I mean, who is his best historical comp as a, as a player? Ricky Henderson? Is that the closest sort of skills comp we would have to present-day Trey Turner? I mean, what are we talking about? Like, uh, plus stolen bases, plus contact, and plus power? I'm just I'm doing uh, career stolen base rates, and none of these guys have uh, Joe Morgan. Ooh, Joe Morgan is a little bit interesting, but Joe Morgan walked a lot, which is so funny because he was so against OBP. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, Cesar Cedeno. Well, that, that, that's an interesting name. It actually is almost a perfect comp for what Trey Turner does. <laughs> a little bit less power. Uh, I mean, I'm still going down. When's my next next big power guy going to be? Carl Crawford? Mm, more power than, than Carl Crawford, right? Yeah, I think... Uh, Jimmy Rollins! Okay. Maybe. Faster than Jimmy Rollins. And a little more patient, too, right? Jimmy Rollins has 7.9% oh, walk no. rate, but a 12% strikeout rate. Yeah. So a little bit, a little bit more aggressive, more contact. Yeah, we're kind of close to Jimmy Rollins. That's not bad. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, the first of the shortstop dominoes has fallen. I get the sense, you know, before you go home from San Diego, a few more deals are going to get done because the pacing has been fantastic so far. Uh, yeah, I went on the uh, A's show uh, that I do and, and predicted that uh, the old starting pitchers would be first and none of the big uh, shortstops would sign. So I was half right, I guess. <laughs> well, unless more news breaks in the time that I am giving us the second outro of the day, uh, <laughs> a big one for Phillies fans and, and Trey Turner right now, kind of the number one player off the board in fantasy drafts for 2023. It's not like a consensus locked in sort of thing, but that's the most common occurrence to this point Uh, enjoy your time in san diego eno and uh, we'll catch up again next week yes thanks for listening 